Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Welcome to Radiotherapy and if you live in Melbourne, welcome to spring. For our international listeners, that means a roller coaster week of daily maximums ranging from 13 to 26 degrees and having to keep a wardrobe of clothes on your back seat. And best of all, you're never short of a topic for conversation or radio show introductions. Today on the panel, we welcome back an old friend of the show, Dr. Voodoo, first appeared on radiotherapy as a clinical psychologist way back last century. A decade on, now in middle-aged voodoo, then went and did something that I can only imagine was the result of a psychedelic trip gone wrong or a wrong turn at the university admissions office. She entered medical school. Hmm. Then, after completing that, not satisfied with two degrees, she's gone on to train in obstetrics and gynecology, as well as bring up four human beings. I'm including baby doc in that uh, voodoo. Amazing! Dr. Voodoo will be uh, turning her considerable experience today to the very important area of perinatal trauma. It's physical, social and psychological consequences. Our next guest, Dr. Ed, hastily thought up in the 30 seconds before we started the show, is one of the cheeriest doctors I know. I regularly catch him in the consultant's lounge at our local hospital, coffee in hand, big smile on his face, which is Extraordinary, given he is an infectious disease clinician who was put in charge of the PCR lab, the PCR lab during COVID, as well as dealing with, uh, of course, the spate of infections. Maybe he's smiling because things have settled down just a little bit for Dr. Ed. He's happy. Well, at least enough for him to come into the studio and tell us about what really excites him about his specialty of infectious disease. Is it mRNA vaccines or the recent brain worm? Dr. Ed will tell all. I've got to admit, the brain worm was my idea. And of course, it wouldn't be radiotherapy without Dr. Keith Gatt, our regular panellist and clinical psychologist in three months, keeping us in our lines. So stick with me, Dr. Mal, and the team for the next hour of radiotherapy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Thank you so much to all our subscribers who, you know, dug deep. They didn't call, they got on the interweb and uh, and contributed to uh, to the to keeping us going. So thank you, thank you so much. Good morning, Dr. Kitkat. Good morning, Mal. We have two fresh faces in the studio, and we're going to yes. do something different. We normally keep our guests waiting outside because they can't be trusted. But <laughs> <laughs> we've actually decided to bring in our guests early. Dr. Penn, or Epi Penn, is away, so we've got some spare chairs. Dr. Ed, nice to have you with us. Thank you very much, Dr. Mel. You see, you're speaking with a smile. This is one of the things that Tim Thorpe taught me 30 years ago. He said, when you talk, talk with a smile. It comes across and that's what you do. And Dr. Voodoo, hiding behind. Mel, Mel, Mel. (laughs) Voodoo, Voodoo, Voodoo. (laughs) How good is it to see you? It's so exciting to be back here in the studio. I'm... Can't believe it. Can't believe I'm here. It's like a trip down memory lane. Isn't it just? Nothing's yeah. changed, Nothing really. Has we changed. look exactly the same. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, I look a little bit better than you, but. Uh... You look a lot better than me, let me tell you. You look a whole lot better than me. Oh, 
Now, we've changed our format a touch since the last time you were here, Voodoo. What happens? Well, we still have catch-up, which is the latest news. Oh, yeah. Um, I have been listening. You'll be pleased to know. Good. (laughs) From WA or in... Just since coming back to Melbourne. Good, good. We are on the web, though, so, you know, you can Uh, podcast and you can live stream. This is new. This is this new. Is, yeah. The podcasting is new. I was yeah. very excited. So I have been listening every day to work and back again. Well, we do have international listeners, which yeah. is wild. So Dr. KitKat will uh, inform us of the latest medical research. And I think you've got something about psychiatrists, KitKat. Oh, excellent. Um, and it's the latest research for me, but it was published in 2018. All right, so I've right s- up Mel's and my elegant, yeah. <laughs> so I, they've been publishing things yeah, since 2008? Yeah. I saw this article kind of come across my Twitter or X, uh, you know, yeah. whatever what you it's it? called yeah. now, um, feed, and I was like, oh, that looks interesting. I started reading it and I was like, oh, it was published in 2018. <laughs> but I still thought, and it was, <clears> you know, in the conversation on that space, so... Um, Pretty exciting mm-hmm. <laughs> news, but we all might have been asked, what would you do if you were me, doctor, in our sessions, yes. seeing clients? Well, um, some research published in the British Journal of Psychiatry yep. yeah, asked Got psychiatrists and examined what, how would psychiatrists respond if they were asked by a patient, what would you do if you were me? Oh. So um, they looked sure. at... I guess three or two different scenarios. So a depression scenario, um, so being prescribed an antidepressant or wait and see, Mm -hmm. or a schizophrenia scenario being prescribed um, an antipsychotic, an oral antipsychotic Mm -hmm. or a depot. 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 Um, An injection in the bottom usually. Uh, Okay. Um, Yeah. Uh, Psychosis is not my field of expertise, but, um, and then they, looked across three different kind of question scenarios. If a patient asked, what would you do if you were me? If the patient didn't ask and they just had to prescribe, you know, whatever. Um, And then what the psychiatrist would do if they were the patient. Mm. And the results were actually quite different across the three Mm. questioning scenarios. Can I just go back to the question? The question was, what would you do if you were me? Mm -hmm. And that's that's the question, or what would you do if it were you? So there was, what would you do if you were me? What would you do if you were me, yeah? Um, a scenario of not being asked the question and it's just kind of, I guess, a regular oh, appointment. Yeah. And then the another scenario was what would the psychiatrist do for themselves, basically? If they right. were in the patient's shoes. Yes, if they were yeah. in the patient's yeah, shoes. Right. So there's a slight difference, like a patient asking you, what would you do if you were me, doctor? And they're basically seeing, would doctors actually tell patients what they would do if they were them or still being kind of driven by their, I guess, what they would tell the patient to do, which can be different Mm. to if Mm. the psychiatrist or the actual patient. Mm. And there was quite a significant difference between what, psychiatrists would prescribe so for example in the depression scenario so being a wait and see or being prescribed an antidepressant in the what would you do if you were me psychiatrists 84 uh, 81.4 percent of the time would recommend an antidepressant in the regular recommendation role they which is that not being asked that mm-hmm. that was 79.3 and if the psychiatrist was the patient it was 39.1 percent of the psychiatrists would take an antidepressant. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's, that, that is amazing. Yeah, it so, is amazing. So that in, in that depression situation, the, um, the psychiatrist would, would prescribe, if they were in the patient's shoes, that only 39% of the time they'd, they'd take the medication? Mm. But if the patient asked, what would you do if you were me? 89 or 81.4% of the time they would say, 
take the antidepressant. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Similar kind of differences in the schizophrenia scenario mm. <clears throat> as well. Um, and I think, I guess it'd be curious to know, uh, Dr. Mal, what mm. you think might be underlying this, but I guess the, yeah, go on before I say tell you what the research has suggested. Uh, you do, uh, um, wow. Um, what 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 is the motivation, or what is yeah, the factors? Yeah, why th- is the there factors? that difference? Um, hmm. So, in a nutshell, what we're saying is that the psychiatrist mm. doesn't wouldn't <clears throat> doesn't believe in the therapy in which they're prescribing. Either doesn't believe, or wouldn't allow themselves to take on that patient role. Maybe that's what we're talking about. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Well. We, well, th- they'd, they'd prescribe differently for themselves mm. compared to for the patient, and maybe it's because they have or they consider themselves to have other resources available or other knowledge available that would um, preclude the use of the antidepressants. Say, like they know how to do X, Y, and Z, so therefore they think, look, I'll or I've got access to other doctors who can help me out if I get into trouble or something like that. That would be that. Yeah, yeah that was one of the reasons. Yeah. So. Um, Doctors or psychiatrists might feel themselves better educated and more yeah. competent to take action if, if a problem, in the yeah. wait and see scenario yeah. um, if their um, symptoms increase or things don't go well. Um, also, the wait and see scenario could be considered a more risky mm. option. Mm. And I guess there's the liability or the responsibility and safety concerns perhaps mm. as well associated with. Oh, right. So they're more willing to prescribe to a patient because mm. that's the safer thing to do, whereas with themselves they're willing to take a bit more of a risk because they know stuff yeah. and can get... Oh, right. Yeah, particularly yeah, in terms of yeah. like yeah. suicidality yeah, yeah, and risk yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, and another one, uh, I guess a, a bias, the emissions bias, I think. Oh, no, that was a different bit. But there is um, if you're telling someone or prescribing or recommending you tend to focus on the positive or the benefits but when you're making a personal choice you tend to focus on the negative outcomes or the side effects Mm. rather than Mm. so i haven't heard of that before but it makes so much sense so you're basically saying that when i'm trying to convince say you're my patient i'm non-clinical but just say you're my patient i'm trying to convince you so i'm giving you the positives but because you're receiving it, you're thinking, oh, how is this going to negatively affect me? So we're sort of coming at the same thing from two different angles. Is that right? Well, so if you were thinking, if you were telling me, yeah. oh, you should take an antidepressant yeah. because these are all the benefits, yeah, yeah. here's some also side effects. But if you're making the decision for yourself, wow. you think more about the side effects That is as a well. fascinating thing. So were, were there any recommendations that came out of this? Um, more research? It was, <laughs> uh, yeah, more research. But I think the point of the um, paper was like psychiatrists could interrogate or reflect on why when they get asked what would you do if you were me doctor they don't actually say Mm. what would tell the answer and and, I mean maybe it just goes to show that that question's probably not really going to get you Mm. what the truth or whatever that is um, so patients ask it because they want to tr- genuinely know. Yeah, you know, I trust. I trust you. You're my doctor. Yeah, I want to genuinely know what would you actually do if yes. you were in my situation, yeah. because I'm more likely to um, take on that advice yeah. if if I if I know that that's indeed what you would do for yourself. Yeah, mm. possibly. Yeah, but and I guess that's a really interesting point, Vu. But you can never be in that situation no. because you're better educated. Well, not better. You, you're more educated in that particular area. Yes. You've got m- usually more resources, more access and more experience. So you can never actually fully be in that person's shoes. Mm. Exactly. And if you've never, that's what they also noted yeah. in the paper, if you've never experienced perhaps psychosis or schizophrenia, yeah, yeah. for example, it's really hard to make 
that mm. decision. That decision. Mm. Yeah. That's a brilliant paper. I'm going to yeah. suggest that for our journal club. <laughs> hey, um, one other thing. Thank you, Kit. That's brilliant. One other thing that we do here on the show, which is new, um, Dr. Ed and Dr. Voodoo, is... <clears throat> Dr. KitKat actually does this thing called the quiz. Ah, because yes. we're, we're medical health professionals, um, we're incredibly competitive people. <laughs> and, I think that's just you, Mel. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. So KitKat asks three questions and we just go buzz to see who's going to answer it. And the end of it, you'll be awarded a prize, which will be a triple R sticker. Oh. Highly, highly valued sticker. Yeah, I'll yeah, have to, yeah. I um, need one. Yeah. I need one for well, my Perth car. You do? I do. Well, you make sure you subscribe. That way you'll have to. <laughs> Go for it, KitKat. So it's not quite a buzz, but it's a first hand up and I am the master, so I get to oh, see okay. who. Food <laughs> <laughs> is holding down. All Dr. right. <laughs> so I've picked three questions, one from each field of our guests and then one a bit of a random oh, random nice. question. Well done. Now she's really testing yeah. our knowledge. Look out. Ouch. So <laughs> how long was the roundworm, Dr. Hari? <laughs> this is a two-parter question. Oh, no, oh. no, it's not. <laughs> I think yes. it might have been first. Yep. Dr. Dr. Ed. Ed. Uh, Eight centimetres. Correct. But I will go for an extra point on this one. What animal is the parasite usually Buzz. found in? Fat. Oh, Mal. Python. Excellent. Only because Dr. Red told me. So half mark. Yeah. No, one mark that. each. One mark. Oh, there sure. was an extra oh, sure. mark. There was an extra oh, point. Sure. So the, what, uh, the most recent stats I could find are from 2021. So what percentage of births ended in cesareans? Oh, um, buzz. Yes. <laughs> well, I should know this. Um, it depends whether you're talking about the private sector or the public sector. Okay. <laughs> Could Can she I be penalised for being too detailed? <laughs> Time's Look, up, Dr. Fisher. It's, 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 it's um, <laughs> you would say about 33%. <gasps> yeah, well, one in three. Yeah. Well, oh, that's 33.3. Yeah, so yeah technically there you go. 33.3. <laughs> yes. Take a third of a mark off. All right. This is a bit of a in the news and. Um, research related. Yes. What animal has the Taronga Western Plains Zoo breeding program brought back from being classified oh, as vulnerable? Oh, Buzz. Yes. Oh, I Voodoo. don't. I don't oh. actually know, but I'm going to say the orangutan. Oh, no, it's no. in Australia. Oh. Yes. It was a mouse. I, and it had big ears, and yes. it was a bit spotty. Yes. Yes. You've described it quite. Well. And there were eight, eight of them, I think. Yes, and they brought back. There's like 120 or something now. Wow. Was it a mouse? So no, brought... it's not a mouse. It's a oh. kangaroo mouse, no? No, it's a bilby. It's a oh, bilby. bilby. The greater bilby. Yeah. You heard it first on radiotherapy. The greater <laughs> bilby has been brought back. Well, it looks like, uh, who's won? Uh, Dr. Ed, yeah, oh. with one, one and a half points. Yeah. Um, one point to one Dr. Point Voodoo, to Voodoo and, yeah. and uh, half a point to the host of the show, yeah. Dr. Mal. <laughs> this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Dr. Voodoo, this is such an important topic. And I was just saying during the break that um, I was listening to a podcast on on perinatal trauma. um, And it's obviously an area which... um, we're hearing more and more about, and we need to hear much more about it because it is so it, it's so prevalent and it's it's so complex, isn't it? Mm, it is. So, so so tell us your involvement. I mean, tell us basically what you do day to day, and then tell us your kind of perspective of perinatal trauma. Um, 
Oh, gosh, what do I do day to day? Uh, that's a very big question, Mel. Um, Work-wise, I mean. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no, but you know, I understood that. Um, <laughs> as, a, as a trainee um, obstetrician um, and gynaecologist, um, the day is many and varied um, depending on where you're rostered to. So, But from an obstetric point of view, um, I might be rostered to labour ward and the day starts out where um, – the day starts out with you doing a ward round as you would on any other ward, um, introducing yourself to the um, women and their families who are um, starting their labour journey often first thing in the morning. Um, and, and Is that what you call it, a labour journey? Well, it's beautiful. Yeah. No, it's beautiful. Labour journey, yeah. So um, introduce yourself and get an assessment of where they're at in that labour. So mm. for some women, they might be having an induction of labour. For other women, they may have come in in spontaneous labour. Um, it's, it's very different for everybody. But you essentially go in and assess where they're at, uh, assess where um, what their uh, current progress of labour is and, um, and how baby's faring throughout that labour. Mm-hmm. Also have a conversation at that point about um, any uh, preferences or ideas that they may have about how they want to manage their labour, certainly from a pain perspective. Um, and, you know, if there's any specific um, concerns that we might have from a medical point of view about um, the potential uh, risks associated for labour and delivery of this particular family. So you might take that opportunity mm-hmm. to have a conversation at that mm-hmm. point um, about how you imagine labour might go and things that you might want to plan for. So you might, if someone's previously mm-hmm. had a significant bleed in their last delivery, mm-hmm. um, you might want to plan for a postpartum hemorrhage, which mm-hmm. is an obstetric emergency. And you will talk about the kind of management strategies that you would do then. Um, if they previously had a cesarean section and um, they uh, are wanting a, a vaginal birth after cesarean section, you might, you know, you might flag the, the kind of risks or hopefully it would have been flagged mm-hmm. much earlier on, but the risks associated with a vaginal birth after cesarean and you might talk about some of the limitations at that point um, in terms of how far we might might go with this labour before mm-hmm. we then have to say call it a day and go for cesarean section to keep both mum and baby safe. Um, so you try and triage I guess the risks that that mother comes in with um, mm-hmm. and or the baby comes in with um, and then look at and try and um, you know map that journey out for the for the family. Um, but then really from that point, um, most families have a dedicated midwife um, who will then see them through um, the entirety of that labour. Um, and our role as um, obstetric um, trainees and, and doctors is to come in when essentially something's not quite right. So the mm-hmm. midwife escalates and says, you know, ba- baby's heart rate's not looking um, good. So baby's um, heart rate might be too high. Baby might be having um, drops in heart rate with every contraction and at some point they want to escalate so first point of escalation is to the midwife in charge but at the next level of escalation is to the medical team if that mm-hmm. um, heart rate can't resolve if so it, if everything goes tickety-boo yep. are you involved at all or is it no. the midwives do everything yep Right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Ideally, um, until the very end, sometimes there might be an issue with delivery of the placenta, or there might be an issue where a woman has experienced some um, uh, some tearing, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then we might be involved in okay. coming to repair or suit to that. Okay. 
But look, the, one of the reasons that I wanted to, to raise this issue is because um, some of your listeners might have heard recently that there's um, New South Wales um, uh, Health Insurance uh, Complaints Commission um, received recently received a number of submissions, 30 submissions actually, from women uh, who had given birth in Wagga Wagga Hospital. Um, and uh, the, the content of those commi- um, submissions were so compelling about the trauma that they had mm. experienced that the um, New South Wales... Legil- can't say this word, legislative cancer council, you know that word, mm-hmm. um, have launched um, now a statewide inquiry into women's birthing experiences, women's and couples' birthing experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and within three days of opening um, the submission, they received 4,000 4, mm. submissions. Wow. 4,000 submissions, yeah, just within New South Wales. That is yeah. incredible. So clearly there's a lot of, um, I guess passionate kind of ideas and mm. reflections going on. 4,000. 4,000 submissions. And look, I started reading through, not all 4,000, <laughs> but I started reading through a lot of the submissions. And look, there are a number of themes that have come out of these submissions uh. in terms of the kinds of experiences that um, <clears throat> that women and, and couples are experiencing. Mm-hmm. And... Certainly one of the and, – and um, um, so not only have women put in submissions but also uh, RANSCOG, which is our governing body, has also put in a submission as have um, heads of department of various obstetrics So units. RANSCOG is the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, yeah. yeah. And their um, primary responsibility is to train, credential um, yeah. and provide ongoing education and, and teaching to um, obstetricians and gynecologists. Um, but 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 in terms of some of the issues that the women have raised, I mean, I guess they include things <clears> like <throat> a lack of information and education during the antenatal period about the potential for an obstetric um, trauma to occur mm. or an obstetric emergency to occur. Mm. So they're feeling not not well informed mm. um, and therefore not prepared mm. uh, for the kinds of events that can occur. Now, in obstetrics, you know, it can be that we walk in in the morning, we introduce ourselves, we say hello, and we never see that family again mm. until postnatally because everything has gone beautifully. We've got the mood music, the lighting is dim, mm. you know, it's a wonderful, beautiful experience. Mm-hmm. But in other circumstances, it can be that that buzzer is pushed multiple times throughout that labour journey and we are required to come in and make a quick assessment about what might be going on, what might be causing that level of fetal distress Mm. or the bleeding in mum and make a very rapid decision about how to um, rectify that. And that, in terms of the response, it's not just one registrar who will come in it can often be up to five or even ten people that come into the room um, in any given moment um, which can be really overwhelming to go from this very calm quiet space where you're in the zone the labor zone to then suddenly having the lights turned on and ten you know ten people coming Mm. in the room when you're in your Mm. most vulnerable um, position Mm. Um, so so certainly being uh, on the receiving end of that level of um, intervention um, is, can be very overwhelming and very frightening um, for the individual. That was one issue that was raised. Mm. Um, the other issue was raised... So that's raised- preparation, the antenatal preparation. Do w- most of the people that you see, have they, especially um, people going through their first birth, have they had antenatal visits or antenatal classes? So certainly there's antenatal care where Mm. you have routine care, you know, um, kind of at that 
I mean, there's a, there's a kind of a schedule of appointments yeah. where you go to meet your obstetrician, and essentially that's about um, or and midwives, and yeah. that's about um, ensuring that you know you've got a normal um, anatomy scan for baby, um, and that and then that baby is growing well, and mm. that there's no other um, potential complications developing, like gestational diabetes is one mm. of the things that we check for mm. at you know between 26 and 28 weeks. We look for things like high blood pressure and preeclampsia. So, as you say, it's, it's a schedule. Would most people go through that? Most, most of, people, yeah. So most people go through that. Yeah. What about antenatal classes where, you know, you go in with your partner and you sit and look at the baby coming through, the, like the doll going through the pelvis? And So tell me, in, in that, that's right, there's, yeah. one, there's one class and it's usually around about 34 weeks, yeah. um, particularly during COVID. That was one of the things that became an online program, uh, right. um, which may well be part of the issue. But in my recollection, of how I've had three children yeah. in, and before doing obstetrics. So in my recollection, and I'd be keen to yeah. know on your recollections, um, in my birthing education classes, certainly it was all about um, the, the expected process Mm. And um, and uh, the the norm what what is normal in in labour. Right. There was no. There, there wasn't any of the kind of the things that could go wrong. Exactly. Oh uh, yes. No. That's actually my recollection as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, who who he knows about the things that can go wrong? Uh, my my recollection too exactly the same. I, it was all about what should happen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I read the ABC article published four days ago and one of the, um, I guess, issues or the, um, it sounded like the debates between perhaps some medical professionals is do we tell um, soon-to-be parents all mm. the risks that mm. can be associated mm. with, and, which can be and freak very, them out. Yeah, 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 very yeah. frightening. Yeah. And then versus infantilising, yeah. I guess, the, yeah. the soon-to-be parents. Um but, and it's such, such a tricky spot to yeah. be in because informed consent and consent, it sounds like lack of consent might have been a theme that came from mm. a lot of the submissions as well. Well, because it's really interesting, right, because you can't truly have genuine consent unless you are informed yes. about the potential risks and the many, and the ways in which this risk could be ameliorated <clears throat> or managed. Yeah. Um, and when you're consenting someone for the first time, when they're in a height of distress, yes. yeah. because yeah. you literally, in some circumstances, you literally have eight minutes like to actually resolve this situation, mm. you know, a code pink cesarean section or delivery, you know, when you've got a baby whose heart rate has hit the floor, you know, 60 beats a minute, you have a limited time to deliver that baby. And so your parents are terrified. The medical team actually have stress and anxiety up here as well because they want to do everything they can to help that baby arrive safely and keep the mother safe. Um and, you know, it's very difficult to actually sit down and go, but before we do anything, we just need to talk to you and make sure that you understand what it is that we're yeah. about to do. Yeah. And for even, even, even if you do take that 30 seconds or a minute to do the best that you can to describe what it is that you're concerned about and to describe what it is that you need to do to help deliver that baby safely – the ability for the parent to actually mm, hear that and process that mm. in that moment of sheer terror mm. is very, very difficult mm. if you've never heard of such a thing before. Mm. Yeah. Wow. It, so, so can, can I just Dr. say Ed? something about the, the second child and the first is there was a lot of assumptions in the second that you've had one so you'll remember. I, rem, I 
I remember nothing about the first one. It was four years earlier and there was so much going on. Yep. So I would have liked to recap, I think. Yes. I'm talking for me, but I, I, you know, my wife as well. So. Well, it's very true. Look, there's no question about the fact that you don't even get offered birth education classes if you've already had a child. The assumption is that you know what you're doing. You've been through it before. Mm. But the truth is not two births are ever the same. Mm. Not two pregnancies are ever the same. Um, and so, yeah, I, th- I think that there certainly is a lot of work to be done, uh, both in terms of educating um, couples and families who are coming in to have their baby. Um, and, and I think we need to hear from those um, families about whether they do want more information and more education about about what could potentially go wrong. So how do, how do you hit that sweet spot that Kit Kat was talking about between not terrifying people yep. with the sort of the one in a hundred case or the one in the 50 case or the one in the thousand case yep. and also trying to normalize it as being you know a um a, a very kind of um a positive experience and what do you do yeah it's a great <laughs> question it's a great question i i i think that i think that the first place actually is in the antenatal space mm. to talk about just like we are educated as trainees, so we mm. get put through training in how to manage obstetric emergencies. So that is an annual training program that we have to go through. And I think that the more times you experience that, the more, not desensitised, but the more that you expect that this is the norm, right? Mm. So I think that if you provide this information and education antenatally, people have the choice not to listen if they choose not to be part of that process they can choose not to be there number one but number two if you at least offer it then at least they've heard it in a time and a space Mm. where they're not um they're not already vulnerable Mm. and already frightened and already in the in the midst of pain Mm. and it can be presented you know in it doesn't have to be presented in a blood and guts traumatic kind of way Mm. it can be presented um there are many videos that you can actually you could actually um produce and that are produced indeed for our training Mm. that families could could see you know if this was to occur then these are the steps that your team will take to Mm. keep you and your baby safe so the devil's in the detail really about how it's um presented yeah rather than you know this you know, um, you know, dramatic music and you know, rapid cuts. It could yeah. be a sort of a, a kind of a, a softer, well, not softer. I'm trying yeah. to think of the words, but a, a gentler way of presenting yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And particularly when it comes to because the other thing that people find quite confronting <clears throat> is um, having an instrumental delivery yeah. Yeah. and the episiotomy um, yeah. that is again offered as a way of um, preventing further trauma. Um, so. Because people don't expect or anticipate, you know, we've all heard of people who had a forceps delivery Mm. or a vacuum delivery, Mm. but nobody, again, has ever really seen them unless you've been through that. And Mm. even if you've been through it, you probably don't recall what a set of forceps look like. Um, And so I I, I think it is about just having it there in that education classes, allowing people to pick up the forceps, hold them, you know, look at them, understand the role that they play. Initially, but but watch this space. I mean, that's my thought. But I think this what this royal what this um, inquiry is going to do is allow people to put on the table what it is that they actually want, um, and then you know both from the patient's perspective and then from the practitioner's perspective, we need to hear each other and we need to um, develop a plan together about what is the best way to do that. Do you know, just my quick reflection on this very, very complicated and complex issue is that um, education um, is often best served as a smorgasbord 
uh, you know, uh, people will have um, different wants and desires and education levels and education kind of uh, expectations. So it's my sense of things is that it won't be a one-size-fits-all. Mm. There'll be you know, a whole range of different modules or, or, or people you can speak to or videos you can watch and you kind of select which ones you think uh, kind of suit you. you know? mm. I get, but then again, I guess you have to do it in a way so that <clears throat> I guess there's, a, there's at least um, kind of a standard uh, that the people are educated to. So it's a very complex mm. area. I mm. It is, it is. And I, and I think certainly that has been one of the recommendations from the college is that we need to make available a lot more, um, we need to make available resources that people can access. Um, yeah. You know, it's so, uh, you know, whether it's video, whether it's videos about, um, you know, the normal labour and birth, mm. I mean, that I think is also important. Mm. So I think it needs to be a balance. But then also videos about, yeah, other, other things that can occur and that may occur during labour. Do you know, my reflection on this, it's just all coming back to me now from, you know, 19 years ago was because I'd done, you know, you've got to do 10 births to medical students. Yeah. And, uh, you know... Do you remember what it was like being the medical student? Yeah, it was terrible. No, no, (laughs) terrible or terrifying? Both. Like, we were were often in the back and we didn't know what was going on because we hadn't had antenatal classes and, you know, we're seeing people in pain and lots of action going on. So my recollection of childbirth was terrifying. And I just thought of every single thing that could go wrong. Yeah. And my wife, who's very... Um, uh, sort of earthy Calm and, and collected, collected yes. and very, uh, you know, um, hippie. And no, birth is wonderful. So she's going into this going, yeah, it'll all be fine. And I'm sitting there shaking like I need the, the sedation. So it was very much about what, uh, you know, what you know and what you expect. I thought, you know, that was an interesting way of, of <laughs> I remember the midwife looked at me and she said, you don't look so good, Rob. And I was thinking, yeah, no, look at, <laughs> look at the mother to be. Anyway. Uh, enough about uh, my experience. We're speaking with Dr. Voodoo, soon to be an obstetrician. And you really, Many years away, actually. No, but you do bring this beautiful psychological perspective, mm. Voodoo. I mean, you really are quite unique in that area. It's, just, it's, it's such a, um, I, get it, I guess, a gift to the College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists to have someone like you on board. We have also got in the studio Dr. Ed... And Dr. KitKat, we are going to play some sponsorship announcements, but we'll all be back in the studio again, so don't go away. Right? Have a cup of coffee. Well, if you're driving, keep driving. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Uh, you are listening to Radiotherapy, and we're speaking to Dr. Ed, who's an infectious disease consultant at uh, one of Australia's largest sprawling hospitals. And uh, he's a particularly cheery chap, as I mentioned, because now COVID is waning and he's getting his life back. What's it like having your life back, Dr. Ed? Well, look, it's, it's, um, it's a revelation. It's fantastic. <laughs> I, the, phone, the phone doesn't ring quite as much, and, uh, and the, the numbers of tests are not so much. We were... Doing so, so many tests. How many tests were you doing? A so day, we, got, we, we got up, uh, so we got up to three thousand a, a day at we one were, location. At one location, so wow. we were and we were a small location, but we were relatively. So there were other places doing ten thousand. So a year before, how many tests were you doing a day? Just sort of that lab. Um, any on, on a logarithmic scale, so <laughs> we, we were we expanded. So we went from three people yeah. to twenty-seven people 
So you thought you had this, I can just picture it. You thought you had this nice, cushy job while wandering with a cafe latte in the morning, say hello to my three staff, all of a sudden, 27. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, a bit like that. I mean, we needed real estate, so they knocked down a whole load of offices. So my boss, head of pathology, he had to vacate. They brought in these machines from, one came from Switzerland, five weeks from saying sign to being installed in there and pumping out. Ten times as many tests as we had done the week before. I, I, I've got to say, you know, during COVID, when I used to see you, you were a blur. You were, <laughs> you were never standing. You were like running for one sort of uh, office to the next, to a lab, to patients. It must have been just... I mean, and, you, and you've still got two phones, don't you? I, I do. Crudely called the burner, the other one. But, the, uh, <laughs> but, but, I, but I, I, have to, I have to say that that was just because the uh, where my office is, my... My own phone doesn't work in my office, so they gave me another one that did oh, work so they can right. get me, they can oh, find right. me. So, <laughs> if it's true, it's true. It's no, I don't believe it. Um, so there's lots of things we could talk about. And, you know, when we were prepping for the show, I said, you know, what's fascinating about, you know, ID now? And you came up with like about a bazillion different things and I sort of have to wind you down to two. And one was just, I mean, it's quite startling how now we can produce a vaccine. So tell us about vaccine technology pre and post COVID. Yeah, so I mean it's an absolute revo- revolution has come on, occurred because I mean the, the oft quoted it says how much does it cost to make a vaccine from nothing to an idea to a product and the words ten years and a billion dollars mm. Um, mm. and that's probably about right and this was done in about. 11 months, 12 months. And it really was a, it was, uh, it's really will. I mean, do you have the will to do this? Do you have the political will? Do you have the medical will? Do you have the humanity will? And, and, you know, there's obviously clearly a massive problem that Mm. needs to be um, dealt with and cooperation, I suppose. So getting the, in order to make a vaccine, you need the target and you need need to grow the target. And, And that was early on, it was grown in Melbourne and, Whereas previously, you know, places around the world may not have shared their work, there mm-hmm. was there was an impetus and a, a necessity to share it. So I know from Melbourne Doherty, they grew the virus and they sent mm. it around the world so that people, lots of people simultaneously could be working on it mm. and have their different ideas and different products and different... So for the vaccines that we have, of which you have three or four licensed here, there were 30, 40, 50 that fell over on the way really? to really yeah, didn't know so, that yeah so lots and lots of trial trials and fails so let's just so can i just unpack that for a second so you're saying that the one of the differences now or during covid compared to previous times is there was a lot more uh, intellectual property sharing people yeah, were just there had to be there was yes and there was a lot of uh and also there was also previously that there wasn't the wherewithal to you know transmit Vast amounts of data, whereas there is, I mean, planes stopped so you couldn't, couldn't carry it in your bag, but mm. you could transmit large amounts of genetic data, for instance, right. to compare and that sort of el- electronically. And so people worked on that, and and also, you know, there were there's a lot of the newer technologies and methodologies were being tried out from other fields or related fields or parallel fields to try and to, like the MR, exa- like the mRNA vaccine. Right. So you you know you tried on this, well maybe that will work and. And other so like the the AZ vaccine uses a um, um, uh, sort of a another virus which is neutered in order to, and then you, you you 
put the protein in that and that carries it into the human. So, so there's all sorts of new technologies being used and some of them worked and some of them didn't. So do you think it was desperation created this um, milieu where people were just grabbing at any idea yeah. and seeing what stuck? Type yeah, of thing? I, I think there was that. I, I don't think any idea. I think there, was peop- there had right. been some... There are some smart people who have sort of warned that right. this may occur. I think the other the other um, thing about it is the um, that there was also a lot of money put in there, yep. mm-hmm. and also in terms of trials. So in you know a vaccine has to be really 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 safe, and so because you're yep. putting a product into someone who is well, yep. and you want to you are giving them something like an insurance against something that may or may not happen in the future. Mm. I mean, with COVID, it probably will happen. Mm. Like Mm. half the planet, you know, most of the planet got COVID. But um, And so that's important that it's safe. And so with the safety trials, Mm. they were very safe and they were done properly and they were done extremely well, but they were... They were elided, so they they went they went on top of each other. So you didn't wait to see that, think about it a bit, present the publish. You had to get on quickly. So they were all concertinaed into a quick space of time to go from phase one to phase two to phase three. You know, and mm. get, so get the answer fast. So typically, what happens with any new drug treatment uh, is there's a phase one trial, phase two, as you said. So you're saying. But it's a beautiful way you say it because normally what happens, you do a phase one, people think, they present, they go to studies, peer-reviewed journals, da-da-da-da-da. This was just one, two, three, as quickly yeah. as you can, all totally safe, but yeah. just trying to figure it out. Right. Yeah, okay, spread gotcha. the news, think about it quickly, Right. do the next bit. But you're yeah. thinking about the next one and the next one while you're doing the first one. And if right. you've got any signal saying this might work, go ahead and press on. Right. So, so, the, so that's two reasons why things... Um, I guess, why vaccine technology moved ahead quickly. Uh, I guess the other reason, too, as you kind of alluded to, was just massive amounts of resources, governments throwing billions of dollars at at, at the problem, um, which can also be helpful, one would imagine. (laughs) Oh, yes. So what have we taken from that experience to vaccines that we need nowadays? Well, hopefully... um, Well, I think certainly there's now an air whereby people are looking ahead to the next pandemic it's yeah. not like it's not going to happen and so pandemic preparedness and that includes that uh interface between research and industry so getting the research done quickly and finding and the platforms to produce those products but then what's the next stage being able to make millions of that product quickly yeah. and that was uh and so a lot of it was handed you know a lot of it was done within you know, pharmaceutical companies, and they, you know, did well, and some of them did extremely well out of this. Yeah. Um, uh, but maybe uh, other ways of doing that within, res- you know, the research institutes having their own wherewithal to get to at least some part of the way down the manufacture stage, so that they can produce products not at and not rely on outside industry. Right. So you mean governments being in control of yeah. the manufacturing? Of- well, governments are also, you know, having, you know, there's. Um, uh, having enough clout within one's own institution. I mean, some of these academic institutions have, you know, very wealthy now, and there's mm. been big donations for this mm. very, for this very um, purpose, looking to the future. And and uh, I think I think so. I, I mean, there's a lot to be hopeful about mm. um, us being better prepared for the next one. So, what do you reckon the next? pandemic's going to come from? Sort of similar virus, different virus? Worms, I, I look, algae? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know, but um, can I just 
divert, di- di- sure, digress just for a moment, but back in um, when I was at medical school, there was a, a thing, a book at the University of Melbourne. Which just was one, called just one book. Just one book. It <laughs> yeah, was all the book you need. It was a microbiology yeah. book. Oh, right. yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know. And it was called The Tangerine Terror. And there was um, and there was three and there was a page. And uh, the page had the three lesser important viruses. Okay? And the top one was retroviruses, mm. which was the great pandemic of the end of the twentieth mm. century, which was HIV AIDS. Okay? Mm. The second one was coronaviruses. <gasps> no. The great pandemic, the first bit of the 21st. 21st century. And mm. what's the third one? Uh, what was the third one? Mm. It was rabies virus. Now, uh, you know, I do not think that so, University of Melbourne <laughs> Tangerine Terror has any predictive values uh, you know, at, at all. However, you know, you heard it the was a first time. Yeah. <laughs> What's this face? It's that, it's that bilby. It's the bilby. It's going to bring rabies in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, I, look, I don't know. Is, I, it, I, is I, rabies a, is it a virus or is it a virus? Yeah, yeah okay. it's a, quite a big bullet-shaped viruses, mm. yeah. Um, I, to be serious, what do I worry about? Um, uh, flu. Yep. I worry about yeah. flu. I worry about bird flu. I worry about flu that's bird-to-bird transmission and bird-to-human, mm. if that could adapt and be human-to-human. We've been there before, haven't we, though? Yeah. They've really been bird-to-human and they've terribly high mortality with those, not oh, really? so much human-to-human. So the thing about the corona, the SARS, yeah. COVID two was, um, you know, great. It's hugely infectious. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, immensely infectious. Yeah. Look, in the time we've got available, I have to go. <laughs> we've got, got the about time. I know. Three minutes yes. left. I mean, there's so much to talk to you about, but everyone's talking about this helmet, this 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 worm that somehow found its way into, into this poor man's brain. Know. Can you can you tell us just a bit about that? So. So this this worm lost its way. So it's a it's a it's a nematode. It's a you know, round worm, and it's in an egg that that really should have uh, been eaten by um, a mouse. There we are, more mouse Building. head or yeah. something like that. And that and then the larvae develop in that mouse, and then the python comes along and swallows the poor mouse. sad mouse. And yeah. then this adult worm would live in the esophagus of the python, and that was the life cycle. Right. Now, somehow, this egg that, that was down by the river or down, you know, where carpet snakes mm. live, the carpet, um, you know, pythons live, yeah. um, that happened to get into a human. Now, most of the time, that would end there, it would stay in the gastrointestinal and it would all be over. But this poor, unfortunate woman, probably due to the fact she was a bit immunosuppressed, yeah. it hatched and survived and started migrating as these little... Hatched tiny, and survived in the gut. In the gut, and yeah. then d- did what it did, thinking it was in a mouse... Probably it was, not that they think really, but, uh, you know, they did its thing, migrated through the tissues and started going through the body. So there's, on, when you say migrated through yes, the tissues, yes. what, did it, what, blood or lymph? Yeah, or? so it gets into, you know, moves to through into blood vessels, moves into, yep, yeah, and then trends, moves around, um, and then through directly through tissues. And why brain? Why does it end up Well, there? it's not... It's not neurotropic at all for um, in the mouse, but I think I think all bets were off in this poor unfortunate woman, and it just found its way there. Yeah. And the symptoms she got—I mean, I'm sure it was elsewhere in her as well. She had on the CT scans there okay. was a mm. hole here and a hole there. Mm. Anyway, there it was in her brain and causing this causing symptoms. I mean, it was in her frontal lobe, and she was yeah. flat, and she was depressed, I think, and she yeah. was, and and then they had an operation and. And then the worm was... What was the operation? Sorry, they'd already done a CT scan. They'd done a CT scan and seen this thing. Right. And they thought that it needed removing and they removed it. A wormectomy. 
A worm, indeed, <laughs> and they pulled it out. So just to be clear, this worm does not normally, worms no, like no. this do not normally um, infest in somebody's brain. No, not it, normally. Brain. We, we do have worms that infect yeah. us and migrate through our tissues, you know, yeah. strongyloides and all sorts of worms like that, but not this one. This right. was not this big, right. not this so one like this. We do not have to be worried about this being... But a relative, an Ascaris worm, we have, are as big as that and they can live in our gut. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, but they stay in your gut, don't but they? But they stay in your gut. Yeah. And they right. cause other symptoms Yes, as well, they block off your gallbladder and they cause appendicitis and then they... And when you treat them, they come out of, you know, in your feces and it looks like, you know, pasta. Oh, my goodness. Oh, well, if we've just put you off your morning break. Sorry about <laughs> no, that. You are. Oh, oh, I've just noticed the time. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much, Dr. Red. We will get back. To, we're going to have both Dr. Red and Dr. Voodoo back on the radio show because you've been wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Voodoo. Thank you so much, Dr. Red. Dr. Kit Kat, I know you had a whole lot of questions. Oh, we'll have to have you back. <laughs> we'll have to have she you didn't back. get a word in. <laughs> yeah, she didn't get a word. Hi. This is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.